Welcome back to another edition of the Disney Dish Podcast with Jim Hill. It's me, Len Testa, and this is our show for the week of March 25th, 2019. On the show today, I eat some food. Disney announces a bunch of things to help park capacity this summer and beyond. And an interesting survey asks what kind of rides you want to see in a new theme park. But first, let's bring in the man whose cassette tape of Motley Crue's Home Sweet Home is featured in the Stranger Things Series 3 trailer, one Mr. Jim Hill. Jim, how's it going? You saw the trailer, right? I did see the trailer, and it got me very excited. Yes, more to the point, I may never go to a mall again. <laughs> Not that I've been going to a lot of malls lately, but, you know, when, when fully formed evil creatures are next to the gap, it's like, okay, I'm going home now. I thought that only happened when uh, when people were uh, were selling the Pepperidge Farm summer sausages during winter. Like, those things are actually evil too, right? What's in them that you can preserve them for that long? These are questions for other timeline. You know, and <laughs> more to the point, our attorney would suggest that the Pepperidge Farm people are lovely. That's and, right. Know, I, I was completely wrong in my previous <laughs> statement. I, I take back everything that I said. There we go. Says. All right, Jim, before we begin, let's do a quick shout out to subscribers over at DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Thanks to new subscribers, Clayton S., Jeremy H., and Ellie, and longtime subscribers, Bob P., Bridget S., and John without an H. True story, Jim, these folks actually invented the theme park giant turkey leg. Apparently, their, uh, their holiday presents one year included a chemistry set, a DNA sequencer, some poultry, and a barbecue pit. It's amazing what you used to be able to get from the JCPenney Christmas catalog, isn't it? So we're, we're not content with just upsetting the Pepperidge Farm people now. We're, we're, we're going after J.C. Penny. Oh, okay, good, good. I'll be in the bunker, all right? The opinions expressed in this show are, are not those of Jim, Jim Hill, Jim Hill Media. Oh, my support. God. Okay. Talk. All right, Jim, uh, before we get to the news, uh, the restaurant Haleo opened at Disney Springs uh, last Sunday, and I went. Ooh. This is the place by Jose Andres that was mm -hmm. supposed to open in December. Then it was supposed to open in January. Then it was supposed to open in February. Mm -hmm. um, but it's open now. And I've actually been twice in the last uh, five days that it's been there. A couple of interesting things. It's an extensive menu, by the way. Mm -hmm. So being a Spanish-themed restaurant, you know it has two things, uh, tapas and paella. Mm -hmm. As far as I can tell, and I've tried like 35 things on the menu so far, it's all good. You're familiar with, with Spanish food? We've literally just had a Panela place open a couple of towns over in Milford, and I've been trying to get Nancy to go there. It's like, ooh, you know, we will drive Paella, around. Paella, yes. Paella. Oh, sorry. You know, again, that that shows you how experienced we are up here in New Hampshire with, with Paella. You know, you with see that. that. Wow, food, yeah. look at it. They're selling panella there. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, honey, pull over. <laughs> I wonder if that's like rice. There we right. go. <laughs> All right. So a couple of a uh, couple of highlights. So the thing that I recommend everyone start with, it's uh, bread with tomato. It's called Panda Cristal con Tomat. This is a super delicate, very crunchy bread toasted with fresh tomato and olive oil brushed on top. It is fantastic. It's very fresh tomatoes, wonderful flavor with the olive oil. The bread is incredible. I, I heard someone say, and I don't know if this is true. Mm -hmm. I heard someone say that they actually import the bread from Spain, Ooh. which seems a long way to fly a lot of bread. 
the, the Homeland Security. I, I'm sorry, we're going to have to confiscate it. Least, <laughs> it's, it's, but their mouths would be full when they said it. <laughs> <laughs> you've got, you've got something there while you're seeing, like, yeah. like spit is bread is flying out of their mouths as they're, as they're saying it. You, know, you, can, you can see how this is going. Oh yeah, this is this is bad. This is really yeah. bad. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, couple of other interesting things they've got. They do this seared piquillo peppers mm-hmm. filled with mushrooms and goat cheese. Delicious. Everyone that I uh, that I gave this to loved it both times I went. The patatas bravas. So it's fried potatoes with spicy tomato sauce and oil. Delicious. Ooh. You would eat this for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Mm-hmm. But I think on the first couple pages of the menu, the highlight is the Iberico ham. I like Iberico ham. You like Iberico. Are you familiar with this? Iberico? The ham? The cured oh, ham right. from the Iberico? Ooh, wait a minute. Okay. This is like $160 an ounce. Yes, I seem to recall knocking somebody over once who was going for the last piece. All right. So there are Iberico pigs from Mm. Spain. Uh, From what I understand, they are pampered like no other animal on earth. I am understanding that they are hand-fed acorns every day. Every night, their coats are brushed and they are massaged. And the, the pigs, up to a certain point, Jim, lead better lives than you or I. I was about to say. Up to a certain point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Who breaks it to them? You know, oh, by the way, we, we're, we're going someplace tomorrow. Oh, boy. Exactly. <laughs> then the hind legs are cured or the legs are cured. And uh, it, it's, it takes like three to four years for the curing process to be finished. When it's presented here at Haleo, mm-hmm. they bring the entire hind or the, the entire leg to you mounted in like a vice mm-hmm. and a server or a waiter with a long very thin knife will cut paper thin slices of the iberico ham off for you and you get a sort of a, imagine a, a, a 10 or 12 inch um, dinner plate mm-hmm. but with paper thin slices of iberico ham sort of covering it mm-hmm. and uh accompanied with like mini baguettes it served a room temperature for a couple of reasons one as soon as you put the ham in your mouth the mm-hmm. fat because it's so thin and it's room temperature, it renders in your mouth. Mm-hmm. So it's delicious. It, it, is, it is literally the melt-in-your-mouth ha- uh, ham. But it's also uh, very intense mm-hmm. and, and slightly salty from the curing process. It is a unique flavor that you don't get from like prosciutto in Italy. I mean, although I guess it's similar. But it's, it's uniquely Spanish flavor. You can tell Iberico ham from every other kind of ham. It is amazingly done. The interesting thing for me was watching this gentleman cut it. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like $160 an ounce for the good stuff. Mm-hmm. So that's, what is that, a pound? <laughs> Aaron, I'm doing the, uh, I'm doing the calculation. $2,560 a pound. Oh. Right? So a, a, good, a good leg weighs about mm-hmm. 10 pounds. So every leg is about 25 grand. Mm-hmm. Hanging up around the Iberico ham station are Somewhere between forty and sixty legs. So you're looking at a million dollars worth of pig <laughs> hanging from the ceiling of Haleo. And I'm so I'm talking to the to the Iberico ham master. I'm like, what prevents you from just taking this home at night and paying off your mortgage? Like, wh- why haven't you all done this? Why why are they all still here? And he's he looks at me like, yeah, I know, man, I know. <laughs> Holy cow! I- but delicious, just mm-hmm. delicious. Okay. The other thing that they they have the paellas, obviously. But oh, by the way, so every most of the menu is tapas. I think the average price for the tapas it ranges from like nine to sixteen dollars. The Iberico ham is thirty six. I think mm-hmm. the average price is around thirteen dollars and fifty cents for tapas, which you can split between two people. So you know, order a few of them. The paellas are actually the thing that it's known for. 
Hmm. These are uh, two-person servings, so they're pretty substantial. I've tried three of them so far. The paella uh, valenciana, which is uh, chicken, rabbit, lima beans, green beans, and saffron. Hmm. I've also tried the shrimp and squid, the arroz, con, uh, arroz abanda con gambas. Mm-hmm. And then they do a, uh, a vegetable one, arroz de verduras y setas de temporada, so seasonal vegetables. The, the paellas are fine. But if you've had paella before, if you've made paella before, I think everyone agrees mm-hmm. that the best bits of the paella are the crunchy burn bits on the bottom. And it's called, actually has a name, it's called sakarat. Mm-hmm. They won't serve it to you as part of the standard menu. So, so yeah, I was there last night, and mm-hmm. now that I've had like four different uh, versions of the paella. I asked the waiter, like, I've had four servings of paella. None of it has included little, little crunchy bits, right? So sort mm-hmm. of like, imagine like uh, in barbecue, right? The burnt mm-hmm. ends, which some people really, really like. Is this yeah, is like the stuff. rice. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. like the rice equivalent of that, right? Mm-hmm. Or like the uh, the skin on Thanksgiving turkey. The sakarat is like that. Mm-hmm. So I asked him, why, why are you not serving this? Is it because you, you're afraid that people will say that it's burnt? And he looked at me he put his hand on his heart and he said, I'm from Spain. And, he, and we exchanged information, not verbally, like just through a look, right? <laughs> like, I'm not going to say anything. I'm mm-hmm. from Spain. He comes back a minute later with, mm-hmm. with a, a small plate of the mm-hmm. burnt part of the paella. He's like, the chef hopes you enjoy this. <laughs> it was great. It was, really, it was delicious. It was delicious. Super concentrated flavor. Yeah, but it was really, really good. Uh, if you're into that sort of thing, if you're into the burnt uh, mm-hmm. part of the rice, ask nicely. They might bring you some. But it was uh, it was super, super delicious. Very, very good addition to Disney Springs. It's right across from uh, Splitsville and to the side of Bongos, uh, across from AMC Movie Theater. Very cool. Definitely sounds well, worth checking out. The other thing I would uh, mention, uh, since I was over on that side, I also walked, walked by NBA Experience yesterday. Jim, mm-hmm. this is supposed to open in June 2019. There is no way <laughs> this is opening in June of 2019. They haven't finished uh, stubbing out the building yet, as far as I can tell. Interesting parallel project to that. How long have we been waiting now for an announcement in regard to the Cirque du Soleil Disney-themed show? I have completely forgot about that. Although they have kept the bathrooms open over there, I think because of the food trucks. Mm-hmm. The notion that this time around it was going to be a Disney-centric show and... They seem to have hit a couple of snags development-wise. A couple of folks. You're telling me it's going to be a Fox production now? <laughs> well, yeah, that is a possibility. I think The Simpsons and Trapeze would go well together. It's worth noting that Turok, they actually had an Avatar-themed Cirque show. Making oh, right. Their, yeah, yeah. You know, so it's not that they haven't tried this, but so many of these folks had lived in Orlando for long periods of time and were taking gigs with other companies and other shows, because it's like, right. I'll be back here soon, you know, in a, a year. And it's like, ooh, maybe not. Yeah, I was wondering if uh, if the acquisition of the of Fox now changes the dynamic for what Cirque du Soleil could possibly use in a Disney resort. So then we'll see. There are so many things going on right now, Fox-related. We'll, we'll get that in a sec, though. All right, let's do the news. Don't forget, folks, the Disney Dish News is brought to you by Storybook Destinations, trusted travel partner of the Disney Dish. For a worry-free travel experience every time, book online at storybookdestinations.com. Jim, a lot of uh, small announcements from Disney this week. Let's Mm -hmm. go over them. First, Rafiki's Planet Watch is coming back to Animal Kingdom this summer. 
no word on the specific dates, but I'm guessing this is before August. Oh yeah. This is more about the summer crowds capacity. It's not like even when this area was closed, that the veterinary services area wasn't being used. They were still doing work back there. Then when you factor in the number of corporate functions that were being held in there after hours, Mm -hmm. it hasn't been open to the public, but it's been chugging right along. So they're going to be able to bring this land back up and running relatively quickly, but everybody is sort of keeping an eye on what's going on in Shanghai. And the Zootopia area that's being built there was originally dummied out for Animal Kingdom, and I wouldn't take any long-term rental plans out back there. I, you know, within four or five years, look for, for Judy Hops back there. You're saying we uh, we shouldn't uh, give a mortgage to the goats in the petting zoo? No, no, no. No 30-year no commitment? Okay. Though I would imagine they've been talking with the Iberian pigs. So, you know, they think, <laughs> <laughs> what? I know, I, I, when it, and then what happened? <laughs> The uh, you know. the Rafiki's Planet Watch mm-hmm. announcement came within a couple of uh, days of Disney announcing that the dinosaur ride was going to be closing an hour before the park closed instead of thirty minutes like it does currently. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm trying to to in my mind resolve these two things. On the one hand, Rafiki's Planet Watch is opening because we need some capacity for summer crowds. Number two, we're going to close this one ride that's been running for years because apparently not many people are going to it, right? We're going to close it an hour early to save some money. So it's like the dynamic of the the, the center of gravity of the park is shifting out of Dinoland. I guess that's what he's trying to encourage people to do. The weirder part of this, think about, you ever been to a showing of Circle or Rivers of Light when they basically walk you out through Dinoland? Yep. Supposedly, one of the reasons behind this is decision to shut it down early is that sweeping the park when people were that deep down into Dinoland USA, because face it, the dinosaur ride is right to the back. Yep. So, you know, the notion of, well, if we're sweeping people out of the park, it's more effort, that sort of thing. But what I don't get is on nights when they're showing rivers of light and they exit people through. That section, because it's literally the shortest way to the front of the park. Yeah. It, it's like, well, wait a minute. It's <laughs> Couldn't you sweep the people who were in Dinosaur at the exact same time? Yeah, just start when Rivers of Light is, is over and push them forward. People in operations insist this is the smarter play and, and we can actually position cast members right outside of, not Restaurantosaurus, but... Yeah, no, not a restaurant. It is a restaurant source. Yeah, that, yeah, that's exactly where I was thinking you would start the sweep. Yeah, doesn't make much sense from an outsider's point of view. But again, if you talk with people in operations, it's like, look, it does save us time. It does save us money. You know, mm-hmm. and this is the smarter play. So fair enough. Mm-hmm. Um, over at Epcot, Disney's announced a new film called Awesome Planet. Mm-hmm. It's coming out. It'll be in the old Circle of Life Theater in Epcot's Land Pavilion. New word on uh, when it'll debut or how far along in production the film is um this is the one being done by industrial light and magic jim yeah disney owns lucasfilm these days yeah so let's make use of the the folks we have at the table the old show that was in the harvest theater circle of life i thought you were going with symbiosis uh the one before (laughs) that but no okay this really is about when this park becomes the center of Disney World's 50th anniversary. It's making sure it has as much 
capacity as possible. I mean, you know, it's really not a coincidence that in kind of the same window of time that we've seen the Disney Play Pavilion giving the company excuse to bring wonders of life back online. This is all about getting ready for the crowds they anticipate for the 50th. And uh, other thing worth noting here is that supposedly with the 50th celebration, you're going to see Epcot change its standard procedure. I mean, you we were just talking about them closing Dinosaur an hour early. How often... Do the future world attractions these days stay open late? Past seven. So the historically, the the underperforming or the slower ones yep. um, would close at 7 p.m. And then the popular rides, the test tracks, the Soarin's, Mission Spaces, and so on, would stay open until 9 or whenever the park closed. You're mm-hmm. saying that that's going to change? You're going to be opening Guardians of the Galaxy, which big news since we last recorded. James Gunn. Yeah, you called that, uh, by the yeah. way. Yeah, well, yeah. all we have to do is finish this $71.4 billion deal. We'll be right back to you, James. Hang on. Yeah. So yeah. you're going to have a lot of super popular new shows opening in the Future World section. So mm-hmm. look for Disney to step away from the, the standard practice of sort of closing things an hour or so out from Illuminations. Uh, I'm going to pause you there because you said Disney to, to debut a bunch of new shows. None of that has been announced yet. Ah. <laughs> well. Do we, do we okay. want to hold off on that for a bit? <laughs> okay. One thing I, I it, well, again, Speaking I apologize. Lawyers. <laughs> I have been chatting with friends about the Play Pavilion yeah. So okay. So so let's segue away from the other thing. Let's talk about the play the play pavilion. Okay. Then uh, you you have an interesting uh, uh, rumor here. Yeah. The, actually, the void opened at Disney Springs back yeah. in December of 2017. This is the virtual reality experience that uh, that I love personally. Yeah. I think it's fantastic. There are a number of voids around the country right now, and. <laughs> Uh, the thinking at Disney, who, by the way, is is an investor. They invest in the void, right? Yeah. <laughs> that we're about to open the Disney Play Pavilion in Epcot. And wouldn't it be smarter in the long run to sort of use the Play Pavilion space mm-hmm. as a way to introduce people to the void? Oh, it's fantastic. And there's, there's yeah. tons of space there for it, too. Well, there we go. The concerns right now is... Four people at a time can do these individual scenes and and that yeah. sort of thing. So very low capacity. Also, uh, not for nothing, but Disney's charging $35, or The Void is charging $35 per person. And yes, that is a consideration. But on the other hand, the notion is that if you go with the heroin business plan, Len, you know, that the mm. first taste is free, and then you send these folks home evangelizing about what they just did at In The Epcot. Void. There we go. Uh, where it's 100 and... Twenty to one hundred and sixty dollars per ticket. Yes, the play pavilion is going to be very fluid. You're going to see things can come in and out of this space. Some on a six month basis, some on a three month basis. That's pretty fast for Disney actually to be able to change things out within ninety days. The thinking is that you know if you're tying things to the most recent Pixar film, if you're tying things to when the next Walt Disney Animation Studios production comes out. Mm-hmm. Likewise, if you're tying it seasonally, if you're you're creating things that tie in with food and wine, with flower and garden, oh, holidays right. around the world, okay. people should expect this to be a lot more dynamic than we've previously seen. But the interesting thing is one of the other ideas that's potentially coming back to the table, mm-hmm. which I know will make people who remember the early, early version 
of innovations, but the Imagineering Lab. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, remember, that was the, the very first place that you could do the test for the Aladdin Magic Carpet VR experience. I remember um, this. Yeah. But yeah, the whole notion is like, look, we're creating this place where people are invited to come in and play. What if we were to take at least one tiny little corner of this thing and make it where we could walk ideas out? Just be ready for when the Play Pavilion comes online that what you experience during your Disney World vacation may not be what friends and family experience when they go there six, eight months, a year later. And the new rolling exhibits will create an ongoing wave of social media postings which with new and different things. Yeah, I get it. I totally understand. There you go. So Speaking of, uh, of new things, uh, Disney also announced a new sit-down or and slash counter-service restaurant will be added to the France Pavilion. This is in, the in time for the first half of 2020 opening of the Ratatouille ride. Mm-hmm. Sweet and savory crepes for a counter service, plus some uh, sit-down restaurant by Jerome Bocuse. Also, Jim, the uh, the interesting thing here is the concept art seems to show a few more uh, storefront facades that haven't yet been built. Where do you think this restaurant's going relative to the current layout of the France Pavilion? My understanding is if you're looking at the art there, you're sort of walking over from Morocco. It's sort of the facade that'll be facing onto that section. Okay, so it's a new section. It hasn't been built yet. Yeah. And okay. this is an opportunity given the number of family members who will be hanging out waiting for folks to make their way through the Ratatouille line. Yeah, a couple of crepes. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Huh. My understanding is once they finished the interior of the actual physical attraction, a lot of those folks will be rolling off of that project and onto this restaurant type stuff. But at the same time, one of the reasons we haven't seen any real work on this is that anybody who's got any skills whatsoever in themed entertainment construction are over Disney Hollywood Studios right now, you know, trying to get Galaxy's Edge done. So you mentioned, so you mentioned that I was, uh, I was talking to a friend in the construction business yesterday. Mm -hmm. Talking about like all the construction projects that are going on with mm. with Disney and with Universal and uh, you know the stuff that's going on over at Margaritaville and so mm. on and there is actually a a shortage of skilled construction workers in the Orlando area right now. Mm -hmm. If you look at the hotels that are going up, like Mary has got a new one coming on property. The Cove just started clearing land over by Swan and the Dolphin, and this guy was pointing out that in, in the economy is doing really well. There's lots of building going on in Orlando. Mm -hmm. If you look at that, mm -hmm. coupled with the fact that, frankly, it's very difficult in construction, in construction industry, to find people who can pass a drug test. Not my observation, the observation of others. Coupled with sort of the higher rates that some of these companies are paying just to get their projects done, knowing that there's a pinch. It's creating creating a, a, a shortage of construction workers in the in the Disney area. Well, not only that, but Disney really doesn't like to talk about this. But remember how we've been hearing the number of $600 million each for the Galaxy's Edges? I've heard um, a billion each. $600 million yeah, is... That, yeah. No, that, that we are long past that Yeah, 600, 600 million was, was a long time ago, Jim. <laughs> yeah, something that was looked at fondly in the rearview yeah. mirror. Yeah, I, re I remember this $400 million ago. Yeah, I've heard a, I've heard a billion to 1.2 each. 
Yeah. Which, again, it, it explains a lot about the whole, did I say June? May 31st. Yeah, I think that does explain a lot of it. And also explains why they're not going to market it very much. Like uh, where Iger says, we're just going to tweet it's open. One thing, you know, speaking of the the France restaurant that's coming, Jim, Mm -hmm. we haven't heard a lot about the other restaurant that's going in the Japan pavilion, the steak place, Mm -hmm. have we? No, no. But when was the last time you saw an empty restaurant over in the Japan pavilion? Yeah, everything's, everything's full all the time. Yeah, in much the same tradition of just tweet out, it's open, it's June, come. Yeah. As of right now, it's like, yes, we're chugging along on it. But at the same time, because so many of these other side projects have had to sort of throttle back a little bit, because I'm sorry, we're throwing bodies at Galaxy's Edge. Yeah. No, I think that's it. I think I think why we haven't heard about the Japanese restaurant more mm. is anyone who could swing a hammer. Yep. It's over, over in Hollywood Studios. But it's, um, so that'll be, it's what, there'll be five restaurants in Japan. There'll be five in France, right? So we've got Chefs de France, you've got Monsieur Paul, you've got Lazal's Boulangerie Patisserie, you've got these two new ones coming up for me. I don't know if you want to count the uh, ice cream shop as another one, but that's five there. Mm-hmm. You you have to wonder whether we'll see expansion of like, you know, Canada or the UK before long. All I've been told is there kind of holding their breath for when the Skyliner comes online, yeah. for when the new version of Illumination gets up and running. There's sort of a sense of what are we actually going to need when these yeah. people start arriving? So some of this might be, uh, there, there might be contingency stuff that they've got planned, but not yet announced. I was, mm-hmm. uh, I was joking with somebody the other day that like the reason why the Japan restaurant hasn't been announced is they're waiting for Universal to announce a Chinese restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Mean. But true. So. I know, I know. All right. So one more quick thing. Uh, and this is sort of a side note, but uh, Misner's Lounge mm-hmm. is expanding over at the Grand Floridian. I, I know this doesn't affect a lot of people. It is notable for a couple of reasons. One, mm-hmm. the lounge really isn't that good. 89% thumbs up reviews from our readers. Typically bars get 96%, but also it's very small. Like this is a cramped, cramped place, not the kind of lounge that befits the Grand Floridian. So they're going to expand this out. From what I understand, they're going to set up a temporary space in the meantime on the first or second floor. And there's also going to be some shopping redos at the Grand Floridian as well. Again, I got to view this as a, we're not expanding it for the summer, but we're expanding it for the 50th sort of thing. I mean, they'll have some space for when Galaxy's Edge opens, but Mm -hmm. they're really, really concerned about when people come to the Grand Floridian to stay for the 50th uh, 50th anniversary. The other thing, remember, the Bippity Boppity Boutique that's also coming into the Right, right, right. But I guess on the back of the most recent survey you guys did over at the Unofficial Guide and Touring Plans, given where the Grand Floridian landed in that survey, it was the number one resort. Yep. Yep. Number one overall. Yeah. Not necessarily if you build that they will come, but if we add more, they will stay longer. (laughs) It's, they came, we should build more. (laughs) There we go. All right, Jim, let's take a quick break. Coming up after our break, we look at a new survey Universal has sent out asking guests about the kinds of things they want to see in a new theme park. We would love your opinions on this. That'll be right back in a second. All right, Jim. Alert listener Tony G sent us screen captures from a survey Universal had sent out about the kinds of rides and attractions guests want to see at a new theme park. Can you give us some quick background on why they're interested in this right now? They're already doing site prep 
over next to the Orange County Convention Center on Park Number Four. Or, you know, and again, we already have a name. We already have Fantastic Worlds, mm-hmm. and people don't write these days. Don't write a survey unless they have a goal in mind. If they have a result out ahead of time, and in this particular survey, they're asking. Which way should we go here? Because the survey talks about what do you want in a theme park? Do you want highly immersive lands with attractions and dining and retail that key off of, you know, a particular IP? Mm -hmm. Or do you want standalone attractions that have some theming that are tied to a particular intellectual property, but still, on the other hand, are enjoyable unto themselves? And what's fascinating when they talk about do you want an interactive experience? And they, this, the example they cite is, you know, experiences like the interactive wands at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter or the interactive banshees at Disney's Pandora, the World of Avatar. Right. So let's go through the, let's go through the questions real quick and yep. we'll, uh, we'll figure out from the, the kinds of questions that they're asking what mm-hmm. Universal is thinking about. So the, the first set of survey questions uh, starts with this. It says, given the number and variety Mm-hmm. of each type of attraction at Universal Orlando Resort. Would you say that there are currently too many, not enough, or just the right amount mm-hmm. of each type? So that's those, those are the three categories. Not enough, the right amount, and too mm-hmm. many. The first one is character meet and greets. So we, we sort of all understand where they're going with that. Kids play area is another one that's there. The next one, though, is, is kind of interesting. It asks whether there are not enough, the right amount, or too many virtual or augmented reality-based rides. This survey eventually becomes a Chinese menu. It's just fascinating, the sort of iterations of of ideas. But the virtual reality ride that they're talking about would involve everybody wearing a headset. Okay. Whereas the augmented reality, they describe just putting out a set of glasses and what you would do is then look out with your glasses into a physical set, but you would see elements projected onto it, the scene would be augmented. Right. That's a, that's a good uh, that's a good differentiation between mm-hmm. virtual reality, where the computer generates everything that you see, mm-hmm. and augmented reality, where you're looking out into the real world, and mm-hmm. the computer is just generating certain things that you see. Like, uh, say, Pokemon. It's a great example of augmented reality, Jim. Very good. So the, uh, the other one, so the next one after that, a stationary two-dimensional simulator ride. So mm-hmm. plop you, yourself in front of a, a screen. Then the next one was moving vehicle thrill ride with mix of physical and screen-based scenery. So I'm thinking here, Gringotts, right? Mm-hmm. That's a, okay. Live shows, thrill coasters, which, mm-hmm. okay. Yep. Free fall rides, mm-hmm. like, so Dr. Doom. Uh, water ride with a drop, that's Jurassic Park. Mm-hmm. Interactive experiences, and this is sort of a catch-all, right? You mentioned the, uh, the wand here. Yeah. Gentle boat rides. Is there a gentle boat ride in? Well, again, remember, you're building your fourth park here. Oh, you're building a park. Okay, so yeah. Yeah. Right, fair enough. You know. Moving ride vehicle with two-dimensional screen-based scenery. So I'm thinking this is the, uh, would you like us to build a Navi River journey? Mm-hmm. Interactive moving vehicle ride. Interactive moving vehicle ride. What is? Buzz Lightyear Space Rangers. Oh, got it, got it, got it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, street entertainment, stationary 3D simulator ride. Mm-hmm. 3D. All right, so with glasses, so Star Tours. There we go. Mm-hmm. Or uh, uh, Simpsons. Mm-hmm. Moving vehicle ride with 3D screen-based scenery, so combination of the above. Mm-hmm. Family coaster. Moving vehicle ride with physical scenery, so big big production thing. And then mm-hmm. finally, a kid's coaster. Those were the big 
choices on the not enough, right amount, and too many. Mm-hmm. And then uh, after that, the middle section asks, how important are the following elements in your overall experience? So for our listeners out there, Universal is going to ask you to assign 100 points total to the items below. And we're going to list like you know, seven or eight of them. Imagine you had to give 100 points total to all of them. So how, would you, how many points would you give to the following? One is character experiences, meet and greets, photo ops, and character interactions. So I think for a lot of people, that would be a pretty decent number of points. Dining. So venues, quality, and variety of food. The type and the quality of the shows, how great the shows are to you. Shopping. Interactive experiences. So ways to engage with the park or the featured intellectual property, such as games, apps, experiences like the interactive wands of the Wizarding World. Oh, there you go, Jim. Okay. Or the interactive banshees in Disney's Pandora World of Avatar. Uh, the number of rides. How many rides you get to go on? That's an interesting question. That, no, no, I agree. In fact, that to me plugged in and, you know, immediately thought of you and the, the unofficial guide. Yeah. What is the magic number? What, what are people going to want? How many attractions are people going to want to see in this park? I would love to see how many, what the average number of points that people give to this relative to the other things. Mm-hmm. Play area for young children. Playgrounds, climbing structures, and other areas for kids to run and play. Immersive theming, so highly detailed themed lands, along with the attractions, dining, and retail elements within them. And then the type and the quality of rides, how, quote, great the rides are to you. They asked the same question of two different types of theme park entertainment. They asked type and quality of shows and type and quality of rides. When I look at a question like that, it's like, where, you know, the number of shows versus the number of rides comes into play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. That is an interesting set of questions. The next page of the survey mm-hmm. is a riff on that because it says, it's asking whether Universal should ever build a standalone ride without an immersive environment again. So uh, the question goes like this. As Universal continues to invest in new attractions, the park designers could choose to do one of two things. One, build attractions within highly immersive themed lands or environments, or build standalone attractions that exist within lightly themed lands. If you were responsible for determining the future of Universal Parks, Jim, why don't you and I ever get these questions? I would turn this into a dissertation, not a, not a, not a survey. No, 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 absolutely. But the example they used as an attraction in a highly immersive themed land, they cited Harry Potter and the Escape of Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also Jurassic Park River Adventure, which that's an opening day attraction for for islands. That's May of 1999. I would say that that's, it's themed. It's a themed land. It's among the more themed lands in that park. I get that. But but here's the thing. If you go down then to standalone attractions that exist within lightly themed lands. Right. The examples they cite are the Incredible Hulk Coaster in Marvel Superhero Island. I agree that is a lightly themed land. It's also very loud. Yeah. Yeah. And Race Through New York starring Jimmy Fallon, which is lightly yeah. themed in every aspect. Yeah. When you hit the downstairs section of Jimmy Fallon, and it's basically a museum tribute to the history of The Tonight Show, if you're you're an entertainment geek like me, I get, I wouldn't think of that as a lightly themed area. It's like, wow, I could, I could spend an hour in here going from exhibit to exhibit to exhibit. Likewise, when you get upstairs and there's that amazing lounge area where you can sit there and recharge your phone and watch 
hashtag the panda have a heart attack. The one thing that lets you down with the Jimmy Fallon ride is is the ride itself. Is the ride itself. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I think I think the pre-show safety announcement is the best part of the whole thing. No, I agree. I agree. Yeah. But Hulk Coaster, on the other hand, you know, they've just recently redone the queue area. And really I know. And I, I, I walked through it a, mm-hmm. a few weeks ago, at, still trying to find a story yeah. or a motivation. And I mean, it's slightly better, but it's... It's not. I, I, w- I totally agree that it's a lightly themed land. So the okay. four the four choices uh, mm-hmm. for our listeners, by the way, the four choices that they want you to consider are this. So again, remember, we're asking, do you want to build attractions within highly uh, immersive themed lands or build standalone attractions that are exist within lightly themed lands? So the choices that they give you are this. Only build attractions within highly immersive environments. Standalone attractions just don't cut it. Exclamation mark. Choice number two. Focus on highly immersive environments, but the occasional standalone attraction is okay. Choice number three, focus on building standalone attractions. Highly immersive environments should only be built in special situations. So like if you've got a really good property, go ahead and do it. And then four, don't even bother with highly immersive environments. Just build more rides and attractions. It's the number three one, Lent, that I find fascinating. The the focus on building standalone attractions Highly immersive environment should only be built in special situations. I think what's happening within the industry is this: there's a recognition now that Wizarding Worlds only come along every once in a while, and Disney got lucky with with Star Wars. You know that I think that Galaxy's Edge, when it finally gets open, and we're talking all the way up on folks with the rise of the yeah. resistance and everything, that will be this sort of land, right? It's like a once a generation per park mm-hmm. thing. There just aren't that many properties to go around, right? Stella, the, I'm blanking her last name now, the, who did all the wonderful work on Hagrid's Magical Creatures Motorbike Adventure. She got a hold of a document that was given out an informational session for Fantastic Worlds. Oh, really? Yeah. And the interesting thing is that. They were warning folks, you know, with this presentation that like, look, we know we're doing the Nintendo area, uh, but we're also considering other lands for our Fantastic Worlds Park. And among the lands that was being considered was a universal classic monster land, which there are folks at Universal who have been trying for decades to get something built in the parks that honors the classic horror movies that the studio made back in the 30s. Yeah. There have been standalone mazes built for Halloween Horror Nights for the generation that includes your daughter and my daughter. A, a land built around the classic Universal monsters. Yeah, not so much. No, that's it exactly. You take this piece of information and the fact that they wanted to do an entire land that was, you know, for example, would be anchored by Dracula's castle and you'd go off and there'd be, you know, several horror themed experiences and not everything has to be a Black Spire outpost or a Hogsmeade or a Diagon Alley. The worry about trying to make everything a highly immersive ultra themed land is what if you bet on the wrong horse? Yeah. It, it's unsustainable. Yeah. Cause I mean, I mean, Galaxy's Edge is a billion dollars. The Harry Potter things were a few hundred million each. Each of these companies has a lot of money, but you can't throw 500 million to a billion dollars in a super immersive land. Like, let's say Lord of the Rings, right? Let's, mm-hmm. let's say somebody gets the rights to Lord of the Rings, mm-hmm. right? Lord of the Rings is a, is a popular franchise, but you've also got to come up with food and entertainment and rides that justify spending a billion dollars. And that's, that's mm-hmm. a risk. 
No, no, absolutely. All the low-hanging fruit is gone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but at the same time, you've cut this deal with Nintendo. The original plan for Nintendo was they were going to shoehorn multiple IPs into that chunk of land from E.T. all the way over to where, you know, a day in the park with Barney was located. Right. And then they're like, no, 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 wait a minute. Maybe these are whole, you know, each, each game is a land. And... I guess for me, when you get down into the actual survey and they, they talk about individual attractions, but they do, you know, they break down, well, all right, what would this attraction be based on? Well, it would be based on a well-known intellectual property based on a movie or a world-renowned intellectual pop property based on a TV show. This realization that when you say you're going to Star Wars land, people understand what that's about, or you get to enter the wizarding world of Harry Potter. Okay. But does that translate to Alvin and the Chipmunks? I don't know. This is the last part of the survey. And Mm. what Jim is uh, mentioning here is that Mm. in the last part of the survey, Universal gives you three choices of three different kinds of rides. And the things that vary are the uh, whether it's located in a not or a lightly themed land, a moderately themed, themed land, or a highly immersive land. And then the kind of ride. Varies as well. So in one choice, it's uh, you have to pick among the following three things. So imagine a free fall or drop tower that is high intensity, that is a physical set with just some scenery in a well-known IP based on a movie with a standalone queue and a light theming, but in a highly immersive themed land. So the queue is lightly themed, but the overall attraction location is in a highly themed land. That's one option, drop tower. The second one is a moving vehicle ride on a flat path, moderate intensity, physical set with two-dimensional screen-based scenery from the survey question we had before, a world-renowned IP based on a TV show. The queue includes a short video pre-show with moderate theming and decor, and the whole thing is located in a moderately themed land. So, so far, your two choices are drop tower in a highly immersive environment, with some light theming around the queues, or a moving vehicle ride in a moderately themed land. The third option is boat ride on a path with a uh, with elevation changes, so uh, falls or drops, uh, lower gentle intensity, two dimensional screen based scenery. So again, Navi River Journey here with a with maybe a ride drop, lesser known IP, and a standalone attraction not part of a themed land. Those are your three choices and. The thing that I saw in this question was you didn't get to pick the combination of kind of ride and immersive environment. Like to me, mm-hmm. a boat ride in a highly themed, highly immersive environment would be the best choice. Wasn't given here. Mm-hmm. So Universal is saying, I guess what Universal is trying to do here is they're trying to figure out, let's say each of these rides costs $150 million to build. We can spend it on the ride or we can spend it on the scenery. Which would you prefer? And that's, I think that's what this question is getting towards. Given a fixed budget of X dollars, mm-hmm. h- how would you spend it? Would you spend it on the ride? Would you spend it on the queue? Would you spend it on the environment? Makes perfect sense. And, and this is always what kind of makes me crazy about certain Disney fans who are you know, just sort of, everything should be an e-ticket. And, and it's just like, no, no, that's not what a, a theme park is about at all. It's supposed to be this variety of experiences that right. you know not everybody is there for you know the the, the well, again just look at 
we have a, a family coaster, a kid coaster, a thrill coaster. You yep. know that the the fact that you know all, you know just is there such thing as a coaster? You know just all of them have you know. And in fact, think about you know what JPEG uh, Bob JPEG was just talking about with the Guardians coaster. That this is a first in storytelling coasters. Yep. You know, do we roll the dice and take the Harry Potter lesson and go all out with you know? A, a park completely, uh, you know, the, the immersive lands. Or is the smarter play to say one, tr- you know, highly immersive land and a bunch of standalone attractions and, yeah. you know, kid-friendly stuff and a mix of, you know, stuff that's based on... Uh, but again, think about it. Think about how th- things have changed, Len. It used to be, you know, you had a Disney uh, that would do the... Uh, you know, would invent an IP, would invent... A Pirates of the Caribbean or a Haunted Mansion and how we've yeah. watched over just the past 20 years or so how, you know, you can't really get an attraction built at a Disney park unless it's tied to an IP, a, a movie or a TV show or an animated series. And the thing that leaps out also about this, this survey is here they're talking about we're looking to build an attraction that's based on a video game or a comic book. Right. And it's like, yeah. The world has changed. So it's true. Uh, it's true. All right. So Jim, there's uh there are eleven more of these questions. Let's mm-hmm. uh let's pause here. We'll wrap up the show. Uh listeners, if you want to hear more about these uh these questions, tweet us at Jim Hill Media at Lantesta and let us know if you want us to go over uh, the rest of these in another podcast. But that is going to wrap it up for this show. Again, thanks to uh listener Tony G for uh for sending these in. On next week's show, we pick up with our chronological Disneyland series. And I will tell you all about the hotels I've stayed at over the last couple of weeks. And for more of our shows, head over to DisneyDish.BandCamp.com. Don't forget, we're produced fabulously by Aaron Adams, just back from Stonehenge, where he was celebrating the start of spring. And go on to iTunes and rate our show and tell us what you'd like to hear next. For Jim, this is Len. We'll see you on the next show. <laughs>